Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, with that, uh, I'm reading Scripture this morning because I'm, I'm not going to lie and I totally forgot to find somebody. All right. Uh, but um, uh, I think Kayla made mention of this. Uh, today is Mother's Day, and I do know that that can be a complicated um, thing. And at the same time, it can be complicated because it can be hard uh, with relationships with mothers. It can be hard with um, death and sickness and illness. It can be hard with relational issues. It can be hard for people longing to be uh, a mother. And, um, and at the same time, uh, this is a man-made holiday, just so we're, we're all, like, we're all good on that. And at the same time, I know moms are like, like, it's a 24-hour job that never goes away, not never goes away, that you never retire from or get time off from. Uh, and so I know some moms are like, listen, I know it's sensitive, but dadgummit, this is the one day that, you know. Um, and so we want to honor uh, moms, but we also want to honor just women in general and um, the way that God has designed women to be revealing himself through that. That's Genesis 1 and 2. God designed women to bear his image. Uh, And we have some amazing women at refuge. And to do that, um, I think Kayla mentioned this, we got got the book that both Kayla and Tiffany won a contest where we got all these books. So we won two of the however many winners there were, uh, which is awesome. Uh, but also we have candy bars. We used to do candy bars for the men and flowers for the women. They were like, what? <laughs> so five years from that point, it, this is how long it takes men to realize things. We're like, all right, so you want candy bars too. Uh, so we have a candy bar uh, uh, for moms, uh, really for women over 18. They're just normal candy bars. There's nothing like, like but uh, for women... <laughs> Uh, it's not like a, like, all right. Um, we'll have some of those uh, for you uh, as you leave today. And uh, because in our world, who, who doesn't need some chocolate uh, and sweet stuff every once in a while? So uh, I want you to know, uh, women of refuge, how grateful I am, how grateful uh, refuge is for you being here and the, the labor and love uh, and effort that you put in to the body of Christ. It is not in any way somehow secondary or lesser than. It is critical. And you are a critical piece of the work that God does here at 1735 South River Road, Suite 100. All right? So with that, um, all right, with that, I'll let the kids go uh, to elevate, uh, even though parents, you, you may want to have them listen to this later, and you'll find out why when we read the scripture. But I'll let them go for now. All right, and we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 again this, uh, this week, and there's this, these sections of uh, Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. So let me read this uh, again, because I forgot to find a reader and decided not to scramble at the last minute. Matthew 5, first we're going to start in 17 through 20. Goodness. Do not think that, I, this is Jesus talking, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, 
I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jumping down to Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard it said, uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black or red. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, someone who has probably had a ton of influence in our lives that we don't even realize, especially starting in the 20th century, uh, is a man by the name of Edward Bernays. Anybody know that name? Now, yeah. um, Bernays has a complicated history, as all humans do. Like everything else, uh, his legacy is, is fairly nuanced. He helped with advertising and propaganda to end, really, he was part of a team to help end World War I. And then after World War I, he thought, well, if we can use propaganda to end a war, perhaps we can use it to prevent war. And where that came more to fruition was perhaps we can use it as a nation to kind of build our independence apart from other nations so that we don't have to get into conflicts overseas, where we can kind of build up our own uh, nation. And so um, he, he started, he came up with this invention called, really, PR, public, public relations. Edward Bernays is the father of pu uh, public relations. He is twice over the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who, and which is a weird thing. It's Freud's sister and Freud's wife's brother. What a Freudian. That, like, it's a perfect mix, right? Uh, and it's, it's their child, Edward Bernays. Um, and uh, he is responsible. So Americans used to have coffee and toast for breakfast. Edward Bernays is responsible for making bacon and eggs the all-American breakfast. That is his, right, as Eric leaves and praises, praises God for, see, it's complicated history, all right? But this is probably not what he's uh, most known for. In a totalitarian government, uh, which, which he was kind of under, beginning to understand in Germany uh, and in, in many um, Eastern European countries, in a totalitarian government, when you want people to do something or like something, you just say it. You force it. But you can't do that in a, in a democracy. In a democracy, for better or worse, you have to have consent. And so Edward Bernays came up with the idea, uh, this idea that he would deem, he would name engineering consent. All right? So all you conspiracy theorists, this is your heyday. Take it and run. Engineering consent. 
One day, a man by the name of George Washington Hill, who was named after, I'm assuming, George Washington, uh, he was the head of the American Tobacco Company, and he, they owned Lucky Strike cigarettes. And Hill was concerned that he was missing out on half of his demographic. 50% of his market didn't smoke. Why? Because it was looked down upon for women to smoke cigarettes. Uh, the European vision of women smoking cigarettes was uh, these were women of loose morals. Now, women were used in advertising for cigarettes, but not to appeal to women. Women were used in advertising to appeal to men. It was a little dehumanizing. It was categorized as women of loose morals, but for men to smoke a cigarette was, was, uh, it was intellectual. It was, you, you were cool. These type of women were attracted to you as you wore your, your top hat and your trench coat and, you know, had the, the debonair type of look to smoke a cigarette. But for women, it was generally frowned upon culturally to smoke cigarettes. So Hill went to Bernays and said, hey, I'm losing out on like half, half the demographic doesn't smoke. Literally 50% of America won't smoke. How do we change this? Bernays did not go to a marketing expert. He did not research tobacco. He did not go to a, a strategist. He went to a psychoanalyst. What will it take to change the opinion of women smoking? He also uh, sent word to his uncle to see if he could help. So he did not weigh the pros and cons of the product. He didn't, you know, advertising was around, but he didn't even say, like, this is how it'll make you feel. This is what, he knew that it would have to go to something deeper. 1929, at the Easter parade, uh, there, was, there was a square. Like, if you've, if you've ever watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, you know how they had the square. That's where the bands perform. That's where the musicals do their act, uh, all that stuff. It's the same thing at the Easter parade. Uh, something that had been, had, had really developed a lot was the syndicated magazine that now had nationwide print. So there were advertisements and lots of stuff in these magazines. And this is where the press sat. This is the photographers and the, the local news writers and all of that would sit at this square and watch. And Bernays, Bernays had it arranged for a group of women to walk into the square as part of the parade, um, dressed very professionally, uh, looking top-notch, debutantes, if you will, attractive, strong, proud women. And they walked into that square, and they did not light up a cigarette. They lit up torches of freedom. For a woman to smoke would no longer be equated with improper etiquette. And it didn't really have anything to do with cigarettes. He appealed to this movement of feminism, throwing off the, the patriarchal chains of oppression of men to get to determine what a woman could or could not do. And within six weeks, the sales of Lucky Strike cigarettes were through the roof. And the idea of a woman smoking a cigarette had completely changed. Consent had been engineered. Now, why on earth would I start 
a Mother's Day sermon. It's not a Mother's Day sermon. Why would, on earth would I do this on Mother's Day and on a passage on oaths? Um, mostly because I think it's fascinating. Uh, but there's also something else. There's, there's a concept in this passage, in all of these passages that we're going to see, is this kind of one day when God's kingdom is fully present, uh, that we will get to experience the simplicity of simply letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, but also I want us to see just how far we are away from that. That that does not just mean, well, we just need to tell the truth. We are going on thousands of years deep of lies, manipulation, um, I bet we kind of tend to underestimate the depths of confusion and uncertainty that absolutely assail us who live in a world completely dominated by propaganda, by fine print, by asterisks, by lies. And so before we even get to the scripture, my hope is that we would not find this as simple as just don't lie, but we might see how deep the rabbit hole goes and that we would see God's kingdom as hopeful and one day, and how to navigate that. There's a whole lot of things that I thought about getting into on this, like when, when can you lie? When is it appropriate? What if Nazis come to your door? And, and like, uh, or what if, as a parent to a child, and we'll get to that, um, like when can you lie? Uh, but I, th I think this is a lot deeper than that. So there's so much in here that I want to say, but we're, I'm going to try to even narrow it down. But before we start with this specific text, what we have to understand, all these sections, all these, you've heard it said, but I tell you sections, uh, are talking about how religious people re viewed righteousness. And, how to, and to be righteous was to adhere to these certain external rules. And we still do this today. You adhere to these certain external rules. This is what makes me righteous. These behaviors, these technicalities, and do not falter. And Jesus is going to tell us every week that we go through this, the solution is not ever to simply do better. Throw off these rules and put on more rules. That's never the solution. In fact, he's going to leave us kind of wondering that. And in fact, if we are trying to do better, if the goal is, all right, so don't lie. So now, you know, don't be angry. So, all right, so now I just need to not be angry. Don't lie. So, all right, so now we just need to tell the truth. If our goal is to do that, then what Jesus is going to say is, you better be better than the scribes and Pharisees. And, and because you're, you're fighting for the wrong kingdom. The kingdom of God works differently. It's not about earning or proving our righteousness. It's not about outdoing other people by our self-justifying technicalities. It is about living out this new kingdom because... God's righteousness has been gifted to us by grace through the completed work of Jesus. Now, how does that relate to the concept of truth when we live in a world of rules and technicalities? So this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 33 through 30, uh, 35. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. The very first instance of us as mankind not telling the truth is Genesis 3. 
right off the bat. Right after Adam eats the fruit that he was told not to eat, God comes to the garden and says to Adam, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? And now we have a name for that, right? It's called blame shifting. It's what Adam did. Adam said, it was this woman you gave me. And it was almost not even really about Eve. It, almost, it, ca- it came back to God. I was doing fine. Uh, until she, until this woman you gave me, remember? I don't know if you remember that. Uh, and that is a lie that will continue to be perpetuated throughout history. We'll see it over and over again. Blame shifting. Men finding women as an easy scapegoat. When the law was introduced to God's people, he made known what he was like, what he wanted from his people, what it meant to bear his image. Though still living in a broken world, this is Deuteronomy, this is when God gives the law, still living in a broken world, this is what it looks like to follow me and trust me and live in the way that I designed you to live, even in the middle of a broken world. And again, if you remember, the sacrifices were already in place for when you, when you messed up. The difference is, are you coming in through the sacrifices or do you continue to spin out of control and not trust me? Leviticus 19, 11 says this is one of the laws. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So this is God's law. This is ethics from above. Jesus is not abolishing the law. He's not dismissing it. Uh, But it had been interpreted in a completely distorted system by which people would try to circumvent the law on technicalities. And apparently the technicality, and the, those technicalities would involve not swearing by God's name, but swearing on other things, different things. Um, I looked for like specific examples in a lot of different commentaries and historical books, and it was hard to find like where this was specific, but I think we do it enough in our day that, that we could probably, uh, we can probably see it. But we see this kind of happen a lot in scripture. The serpent deceives Eve, first time language is manipulated, right? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat that? Adam, blame shifts. Abram lies about his wife. Jacob lies about Esau the she- uh, and the sheep. Well, Jacob lies about everything, really. Um, <laughs> Joseph's brothers lie to their father, and on and on and on. As a people, this pervades their existence, and the erosion of the trust of God is gone. Though God consistently stays faithful and true to his word. He never changes. Now, Jesus refers specifically here to oaths, and there's some discussion about, is this referring strictly to legal processes? So if you're before a certain judge and you've sworn to tell the truth, do you have to, you know, what, what, are, what, what are your uh, things there? Um, but I have, a, I, I have a tendency to see if, if oaths, legal oaths are up here, I think it just fills in everything that's below, right? So I think this is about personal. I think this is about lying. I think this, this incorporates all of it. Um, and here's why I think this. I don't think this is specifically about oaths because God makes oaths with, uh, to his people. Kings would swear by oaths. Jesus, um, Jesus is saying... He's saying that we should never make oaths, but it, is this strictly a legal issue? Like, if are little white lies okay? Um, just not swearing on, on anything? But, but here's the deal. If you think about it, 
the very existence, the very fact that we make oaths and promises, the very fact that we have to say, I promise, reveals the problem. Right? It reveals that there's something that we have to say, I promise, because we haven't before. We live in a world where we have to make promises because our word isn't good enough. The world, the way that it works. Parents, little guilt, just a little bit. How many times have you ever heard from a child, parents, do you promise this time or something to that effect? You know why we hear that, right? All right. But, kids, kids, yeah, all right. Uh, don't think you're getting away scot-free here. If you let me fill in the blank here, right? Get that new game system. Watch this movie. Go to Six Flags. Finish this video game. Get to hit 15 more minutes on the computer. Go out and play. Go to the pool. Have popcorn. Have something. Have candy. If you let me sleep, if you let me go out with friends, what have I missed? Probably a lot, right? If you let me, then I will, then I promise I'll do my chores later. I, uh, I will go to sleep right after I'm done with that. The creme de la creme, kids. And I know because I've done this. I will never, ever, 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 ever ask for anything else ever again. Just get me the PS whatever number we're on. Just give me a phone already. Where do they learn that? Ah. <sighs> Is this what they're teaching in schools? <laughs> All right. Apparently, Hebrew culture was pretty untrustworthy for a culture that was supposed to be made up of pe the people of God. You, would swear by, you wouldn't swear by God's name because that's a sin, but if you swear by Jerusalem, if you swear by the temple, or if you swear by your own name, or if you swear on your mother's grave, right? We have to find things to swear on. And then we promise this time will be different. This time, I mean it. Jesus is going to tell us all of these things fall under God's heaven. doesn't matter what you swear on. It all falls somewhere under God's heaven. It's all his, and your promises are still empty, and you're still breaking God's law. Here's the grievous part about this. We were not designed, we were made to trust we were not made to live in a world with fine print, with this time I promise. But this is the world that we live in. And it's the world that we participate in. And it's far more complicated than just don't lie. Or even just always tell the truth. I've heard Christians abuse that. We should tell the truth. With no relationship, no grace, no mercy, no compassion. We just tell the truth. Right? Now, don't, like progressives don't get off scot-free because 
I know some people that do everything. It is all about love and inclusivity, and it's some of the meanest people I've ever met. All right? So we, this whole, like, uh, we, we are contradictions. This world is a tricky world, and it, and it wasn't designed to be tricky. We, I don't think we were meant to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think we were meant to be naive and gloriously naive and just trust. To trust God and even to trust each other. I read a book this week. It was really good, and I'm really not sure how to reference it. The author is a philosopher. He's a professor emeritus at Princeton University who wrote a book uh, in 2005. And he distinguishes between lying and cow manuring. We all, all right. And the point he makes is actually, man, fascinating and kind of you want to tell him to shut up. Uh, it's interesting. And I think it's relevant to this passage and certainly to our world that we live in. When you lie, you actually have to know what the truth is because you're seeking to avoid it. You're seeking to manipulate it. You're seeking to tell the opposite and to kind of find a way to cover what the truth is. But to cow manure, you're not concerned with the truth at all. You may be telling the truth. You may be lying. That's not the point. The point when you do that is self-presentation. What you will think about me. Will I get away with this? Will you be impressed with me? We're more concerned with ourselves. The truth really doesn't have anything to do with it. And it's all self-propaganda. And the world seems to be more full of this in our day than ever before. And I am guilty. And I bet you are too. Let me read this. Harry Frankfurt the author, he says this. Cow manure is unavoidable whenever circumstances require someone to talk without knowing what he is talking about. <laughs> Thus, the production of cow manure is stimulated whenever a person's obligations or opportunities to speak about some topic are more excessive than his knowledge of the facts that are relevant to that topic. This discrepancy is common in public life where people are frequently impelled, whether by their own propensities or by the demands of others, to speak extensively about matters which they are to some degree ignorant. Closely related instances arise from the widespread conviction that it is the responsibility of a citizen in a democracy to have opinions about everything, or at least everything that pertains to the conduct of his country's affairs. The lack of any significant connection between a person's opinions and his apprehension of reality will be even more severe, needless to say, for someone who believes it is their responsibility as a conscientious moral agent to evaluate events and conditions in every part of the world. Written in 2005, Facebook started 2004, just on college campuses, Twitter in 2006. We have given this thing a megaphone. 
When we take the problems of ancient Israel, we add to it engineering consent in a world where cow manure is magnified, I think we can pretty well relate to a system of a public communication that's filled with false advertising, broken promises, overselling a product, fine print, outright lies, manipulation of the truth, photoshopped images of humans that show no humanness whatsoever, that we are medicated, addicted, filled with motivational posters encouraging us not to give up, just be more. Just be more and more and more. And the world will love you if you're just a little bit more. I have never seen a people that have to work this much at being authentic. Does anyone else feel the pressure of having to be someone? How many lists? These are not as popular right now, but how many lists have you seen online of all the things that you shouldn't say to a mom, all the things you shouldn't do as a mom, all the signs of successful, healthy children, and uh, the list of things to never say on Mother's Day, and the list of things to always say on Mother's Day? And guess what? We lie. Because of course we lie. It's impossible. And we cow manure. Because I don't want to be deemed a heretic. And I don't want to get canceled. And so of course we lie. How do you make it in this system without lying? Brene Brown in her first TED Talk on vulnerability shows sociology even bears witness to this. This is not how we were meant to be. We were designed for connection. And she shows this through qualitative research. Our deepest need is connection. If our deepest need is connection, what's our deepest fear? Rejection. So of course we lie. Of course we put the presentation on. Of course we don't let our yes be yes and our no be no. All right, everybody take a deep breath. Maybe me take a deep breath. Of all the sayings that Jesus goes through, like I had to navigate this because I couldn't do anger on Mother's Day and I, I thought lust would, but it, there's also adultery. And I was like, I, that's not gonna, ever going to work on Mother's Day. So I thought, I'll just do this one. And, and oaths seem to be a simple one to kind of move forward to. But man, the more that I dug into this, it just got uh, to see how deep this goes, that it's more than just not lying. To simply let our yes be yes and our no be no, no is, is more than just not lying. And, and it's more than that deontological ethics that says, you know, lying is bad, don't lie, ever. Because to let your yes and be yes and no be no, it involves relationships. It involves knowing the capital T truth, God himself. And, and ultimately, I think it's learning to believe the truth about God and his character. And then in light of that, and I think only in light of that, is it possible uh, to actually be able to tell the truth about ourselves? that we are image bearers and also that we're guilty. And by God's mercy and grace and the work of Jesus, we're also loved. Telling the truth is not over-dramatizing. 
Oh, I'm the worst ever. Nor is it minimizing. Well, at least I'm not as bad as. It's a sober view of who we really are. Anytime you walk into a recovery community of any kind, the first step in a, in a, in a recovery community is telling the truth about yourself, admitting you need help, acknowledging the brokenness, and then there's still work to be done, but then everybody jumps in to cheer on healing. Now, I think this is important because a lot of times we talk about you're a sinner. That's not all you are, okay? That's not all you are. And to sit there and go, I'm just a sinner. No, you are also an image bearer. Or to walk in and be like, well, I'm a shooting star. No, you're also a sinner, God is not like the cosmic Paula Abdul. Uh, you are, we are both. We are made in God's image and we're broken and, and sinful. I love one of my favorite authors, Brendan Manning. <sighs> Puts it this way. He says, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. Do we have, yeah, all right. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. The gospel of grace nullifies our adulation of televangelists, charismatic superstars, local church heroes. It obliterates the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift all that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. And while there is much we may have earned, our degree, our salary, our home, our garden, a Miller light, and a good night's sleep, all this is possible only because we have been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see, hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, a heart to beat with love. We have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have power, the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is a sheer gift. It is not reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer. Even our fidelity is a gift. If we but turn to God, saying, said St. Saint Augustine, that itself is a gift from God. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. The kingdom of God is not for those who have technically avoided making false oaths. I think we've all broken promises, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And we've all probably been the victim of broken promises. What a beautiful, powerful irony that the kingdom of God, uh, get, oh wow, sorry, that, all right, I'm not going to, the kingdom of God is not for those who lie about not lying. Isn't that a, I think that's a beautiful irony. The kingdom of God is for those who are honest 
about their guilt of broken promises and their hurt from broken promises to turn and trust the character of God and the work of Jesus to forgive and love and restore. And I think to live honestly before God, which, is, which must be an ongoing relationship with God, it's not walk and I'll make a decision, here I go, now I'm good, but it's to live honestly before God. This is confession and repentance. This is ongoing relationship, receiving his grace and actually acting in a trusting way toward him. And I think that works on us as we live honestly in that relationship and then live that out in relationship with others. And our witness then becomes wanting to help others live honestly before God and trust his character to make known the work of Jesus that allows us to be reconciled. And then eventually, if we get really brave, we'll even let other people speak into our own issues. I've told our kids over and over again, and I need to tell myself all the time, when you lie, I can't defend you. When you lie, I can't help. When you lie, you have to fight this stuff on your own. When you tell the truth, we can fight together. So I want to finish by taking us back to the very beginning. We're going to imagine a situation that didn't take place. And theologically, honestly, I don't even know if my, with my theological camp if I'm even allowed to ask this question or reimagine this situation. So I'm going to do it quietly. Lest the reform crowd come after me. Adam, who told you you were naked? Did you eat the tree that I told you not to eat? Yes. I did. I did. And I, I totally remember what you said. I wasn't deceived. And I did it anyway. And I'm guilty. Um, God, excuse me, Eve chimes in. I did too. My head was spinning. Um, and I, but I know, I knew what you told him, and I ate too. And I'm also guilty. Quick test on how we view the character of God. How does God respond in this imagined scenario? Eve, Adam, come here. Let me gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Sit on my knees. Do you know that I love you? Do you know that I created you? I want good for you. Do you know that? I didn't put this boundary in here to be a killjoy. I put it in here as an opportunity for you to trust me. I put these here for your good because I love you. And I want you to know that you can trust me. And even when the fruit looks good, you can trust me when I put boundaries in place. And listen, 
I'm not happy that you ate the fruit. I'm not happy that you ate the fruit. But you were honest with me. And now we can fight together. Now we can deal with this. It is the goodness and kindness and character of God that leads us to repentance. To be honest before him. One day, one day we will actually stand before God completely exposed to know this is the heartbeat of the gospel to stand completely exposed not with our resumes but to stand completely exposed and because of Jesus not rejected but actually loved to be able to simply simply that's what Jesus says to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that the invitation is to trust you, um, to be honest about your character, to fight to have to believe that, to be honest in ourselves and our own presentation and, and the lies that we believe about ourselves, uh, either that we are better or worse than we are, um, and our presentation and our maneuvering around and our lying and manipulating and cow manuring and all of those things that we do to try to avoid being exposed. And yet, the heartbeat of the gospel is that we stand totally exposed, that you know everything about us, but we're not rejected there. It is the great, it, 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 it evens the field. There is nobody that stands before you better than that. And somehow the church got mixed up to think that we are somehow better than anybody else. Your people of old got mixed up to think that somehow if they follow technicalities, then there's an upper class and a lower class. And sin equals the playing, the playing field. And to turn and trust you and actually believe your character and throw, yourselves at our, at, throw ourselves at your mercy is to find out that we are, because of the work of Jesus, we're loved. Thank you for loving us, and I pray the more we press into that, the more freedom we will experience in not having to, to cover up, to hide, to feel shame, but to be able to let our yes be yes and our no be no. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.